0: organic, free-range HTML, wild, freshwater CSS, and 21-day mature JavaScript. This is not just a podcast. This is Smashing. It's Smashing.
1: This episode of the Smashing Podcast, we're talking about the transitional web. What is it, and how does it describe the technologies we're using? We talked to expert Chris Ferdinandi to find out. But first, did you know that Smashing Magazine publishes brand new articles to the website throughout your working week? There's a lot to keep up with, but we're here to help.
0: It's your weekly update.
1: In What's the perfect design process? Smashing's own Vitaly Friedman reminds us that the design process is messy. You might be following a structured approach, but all too often it takes on a life of its own and before you know it, you are designing in chaos with last minute changes and missed deadlines. So, asks Vitaly, what is the perfect design process? Kasima Milka and Jeff Graham bring us Sustainable Design Toolkits and Frameworks, wherein they ask how we can create products and experiences that don't cause harm to the planet and the people who use them. What do we need to consider to make more sustainable design decisions and reduce the carbon footprint of our websites? Kasima and Jeff have compiled a list of valuable resources that will get you familiar with the principles of sustainable design. Yes! In the UX of flight searches, how we challenged industry standards, Robert Ghosh highlights that, as of today, the world's 50 top airlines have all agreed on the same flight search pattern. Yet the path to booking the right flight remains frustrating and confusing. Is there really only one solution? Explore the thought experiment which turned the seemingly untouchable pattern on its head and offered new food for thought. Bravo! Tamania Thief looks at shines, perspective and rotations. Fancy CSS 3D effects for images. CSS has all kinds of tricks that are capable of turning images into neat interactive elements. This article by Tamani is a collection of fancy 3D effects for images that demonstrates some of those CSS powers. Learn how they work and get your hands dirty with CSS features that add perspective, depth, rotation and even a slick shine to images that you can use in your next project. In How to Become a Better Speaker at Conferences, Andy Budd leans into his experience of a 10-year run curating the UX London and Leading Design Conferences, during which he's watched thousands of presentations. In this article, Andy outlines some of the things that make a potentially amazing presentation, as well as a few big gotchas. If you've ever wondered what it takes to get a speaking slot at a conference, this article is for you. And that is your weekly update.
0: Find all these and more at smashingmagazine.com slash articles.
1: He's the author of the Vanilla JS Pocket Guide series, creator of the Vanilla JS Academy training program, and host of the Vanilla JS podcast. We last talked to him in late 2021 where we asked if the web was dead, and I know that because I looked it up on the web. So we know he's still an expert in vanilla JS, but did you know he invented fish and chips? My smashing friends, please welcome back Chris Ferdinandi. Hi Chris, how are you? I'm smashing, thanks so much. How are you today, Drew? I'm also smashing. Thank you for asking. It's always great to have you back on the podcast. The two of us like to chat about some of maybe some of the bigger picture issues surrounding the web. I think it's easy to spend time thinking about the minutia of techniques or day-to-day implementation or what type of CSS we should be using or, you know, these things. Sometimes it's nice to take a bit of a step back and look at the wider landscape. Last year, late last year, you wrote an article on your Go Make Things website called The Transitional Web. What you were talking about there is the idea that the web is always changing and always in flux. I kind of, after, I don't know how long I've been doing this, 25 years or so working on the web, I guess change is pretty much the only constant, isn't it?
0: It sure is. Although to be fair, it feels like a lot of what we do is cyclical. so we'll learn something and then we'll unlearn it to learn something new. And then we'll relearn it again, just in maybe like a slightly different package, which is in many ways, I think the core thesis of the article that you just mentioned. And is that is that just
1: human nature? Is that particular to the web? I mean, I, I always think of when I was a kid in the 80s, the 1980s. I okay, guess so. We're talking a long while back. It was a wild one, time. One of the one of the sort of pinnacles. Of if you had a bit of you know spending power, one of the things you'd have in your living room was a like a hi fi separates unit. So you'd have a tape deck, mm-hmm. uh, maybe a CD deck, an amplifier. And I always remember as a kid, they'd all be silver, starting off. And those were the really cool ones. And then after a while, a manufacturer would come out with one that wasn't silver. It was black. And suddenly black looked really cool. And all the silver stuff looked really old. And so then you'd have five years of everything being in black. And then somebody would say, ah, black's so boring. Here's our new model. It's silver. And everyone would get really excited about that again. I kind of feel like somehow the web is slightly, you know, and as I say, maybe it's a human nature thing. Perhaps we're all just magpies um <laughs> and want to go to something that looks a bit different and a bit exciting and and claim that's the 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 latest greatest thing. Do you think there's an element of that?
0: Yeah, I think that's actually probably a really good a really good analogy for what it's like what our I think our industry has a tendency to do. I think it's probably bigger than just that. I had a really I do to say a really good thought. That sounds arrogant. I had a thought. I don't know if it was good or not. I forgot what it was, so oh. <laughs> it'll. Come so back. I can't tell
1: you, but it was related as you were talking. I, I bamboozled <laughs> you. would talk of hi-fi separates. I mean, yeah, no, it's great. <laughs> a lot. It's great. Last, uh, we last talk uh, talked about this concept of the lean web, where we were seeing a bit of a swing back away from these big frameworks, where yeah. you know everything is JavaScript, and you know even our CSS was in JavaScript. And we're beginning to see at that time a launch of things like PettyView, AlpineJS, Preact, these sort of smaller, more focused libraries mm-hmm. that t- try and reduce the weight of JavaScript and be a little bit more
0: targeted. Is that a trend that has continued? Yeah, and it's, it's continued in a good way. So you still see projects like that pop up. I've seen since then a few more kind of tiny libraries. But I think one of the other big trends that I'm particularly both excited about and then maybe also a little bit disheartened about is the shift like beyond smaller client-side libraries into back-end compiler tools. So you have things like Svelte and Kit and Astro, which are designed to let people continue to author things with a state-based UI, javascript approach, but then compile all of that code that would normally have to exist in the browser and run at runtime into mostly HTML with just the sprinklings of JavaScript that you need to do the specific things you're trying to do. And so, you know, the output looks a lot more like traditional DOM manipulation, but the input looks a lot more like something you might write in React or view. Um, uh, so I think that's pretty cool. It's not without... In my opinion, some maybe some holes that people can fall into, and I'm starting to see some of those tools do the like, hey, we solve this cool thing in an innovative way, so let's go and repeat some of the mistakes of our past but differently. The kind of traps, and we can talk about that. That didn't make it into the article that you referenced. I recently kind of wrote an update, looking back on on kind of how things are changing. That kind of talks about where they're headed. But one of the big, I think one of the big things in my article, the transitional web, was kind of this musing about whether these tools are kind of the future or just a transitional thing that gets us from where we are to where we're headed. Um, So, for example, Hmm. uh, if you've been on the web for a while, you may remember that there was a time where jQuery was the client-side library. Um, If you were going to do JavaScript in the web, you were going to use jQuery. jQuery Um, was everywhere. Yeah. And not that you couldn't get by without it, but like doing something like getting all of the elements that have a class was incredibly difficult back in like the IE6 through 8 kind of era. And jQuery made it a lot easier. It like smoothed things out across Mm. browsers. It was great. But eventually browsers kind of caught up. We got things like query selector and query selector all the class list API, cool methods for moving elements around like append and before and after and remove. And Suddenly, a lot of the stuff that was jQuery's bread and butter, you could just do across any browser with minimal effort, Mm. but not everything. There were still kind of some gaps or some areas where you might need polyfills. And so you started to see these smaller tools that were like jQuery. They did some of the things, but they didn't do everything. So like Mm. the ones that immediately come to mind for me are tools like Umbrella.js or Shoestring from the folks over at Filament Labs. And the thing with those tools is they were really popular for like a hot minute. Everyone's like, you don't need jQuery, use these. And then the browsers like really caught up and they went away entirely. And so, and actually even before that fully happened, you started to see tools like React and Vue and Angular kind of start to dominate and just really people either use jQuery or these other tools and they don't touch Umbrella or Shoestring at all. So I think the thing I often wonder is are tools like Preact and Solid and Svelte and Astro, are those more like what React did for the industry or more like Umbrella and Shoestring, where they're just kind of getting us to whatever's next? At the time that I wrote the article, I suspected that they were transitional. Hmm. Now, I think my thoughts have shifted a little bit. And I feel like tools like Preact and Solid are probably a little bit more in Petite View. Mm -hmm. Or you called it something weird because you're British, I forget, like Petty View or something, but I'm just teasing. I'm sorry. I love you, Drew. (laughs) I was attempting to go for the French. (laughs) But sorry, I just I have the way you guys say herbs stuck in my head now instead of (laughs) herbs and I just can't. But so, yeah, I feel like those tools are potentially transitional and the what's next just as an industry is in my opinion, and a lot could change in the next year or three. The way I'm feeling now, it seems like tools like Astro and Svelte are going to be kind of that next big wave, Hmm. at least until browsers catch up a lot. So like, in my opinion, the things that browsers really need to have to make a lot of these tools not particularly necessary is some sort of native DOM diffing method that works as easily as inner HTML does for replacing the DOM, but in a way that doesn't just destroy everything like i want to be able to pass in an html string and say you know make the stuff in this element look like this with as little messing up of things as possible and so until we have that i think there's always going to be some tooling there's a lot of other things that these tools do like you know that you can Animate transitions between pages like you would in SPA. We've got like a new API that will hopefully be hitting the browser in the near future. It works in Chrome Canary now, but nowhere else. The transitions API. There's an API in the works for sanitizing HTML strings so that you don't like do terrible cross site scripting stuff. Hasn't really shipped anywhere yet, but it's in the works. So there's a lot of library-like things in the works, but DOM diffing, I think, is really the big thing. So much of how we build for the web now is grab some data from an API or a database and then dynamically update the UI based on things the user does. And you can do that with DOM manipulation. I absolutely have, but man, it is so much harder to do. (laughs) So I really, I get the appeal of state-based UI. The flip side is we also use state-based UI for a lot of stuff where it's not Appropriate, and it ends up being harder to manage and maintain in the long run. So I'm rambling. I'm sorry, Drew. Stop me. (laughs) Ask. I mean, just to go back to uh, you know, uh, I don't want to gloss
1: over the importance of of jQuery in in as an example for this overall trend, because Mm -hmm. as you say, you know, at the time it was really difficult to just find things in the DOM to target something. You know, you could give things an ID, and then you had get element by id and you could target it that way but say you wanted to get everything with a certain class you could that was incredibly difficult to do because there was no way of accessing the class list you could just get the attribute value and then you would have to dissect that yourself and so incredibly inefficient to try and get something by class and what uh, jquery did was it took uh, an api that we were already familiar with the css selector api essentially and implemented that in JavaScript, and all of a sudden, it was trivially easy <laughs> to target things on the page, yeah. which then made it. it I mean, it, it very quickly just became the de facto way that that any JavaScript library was allowing you to address elements on in in the DOM. And because of that trend, because that's how everybody was wanting to do it with quite a heavy JavaScript implementation. Let's let's not forget this was not a cheap thing to do. That. The the web platform adapted, and we got Query Selector, which does the same thing. In Query Selector all, and of course, then what jQuery did, or I think it's was its its selector engine was called Sizzle, I think, under the hood. Sizzle yeah. then adopted Query Selector all as part of its implementation. So yeah. if a if a selector could be resolved using the native one, it would. So actually, the web platform was inspired by jQuery and then improved jQuery in this sort of whole you know this whole cycle so i think you know it's this the way the web has always progressed is observing what people are doing looking at the problems that they're trying to solve and you know the mess messes of javascript that we're using to try and do it it. and then to provide a native way to do that which just makes everything so much easier and
0: is I mean, is that the ultimate trend? Is that what we're looking at here? Yeah, for sure. theres uh, I often describe jQuery as paving the cow paths. So, so many of the methods that I love and use in the browser, I owe entirely to jQuery. And I think recognizing that helped me get less angry at some of the damage that modern frameworks do <laughs> or modern libraries. Because the reality is they are I think the thing is, a lot of them are experiments that show alternate ways to do things. And then we have a tendency as an industry to be like, if it's good for this, it's good for everything. And so (laughs) like React is very good at doing a specific set of things in a specific use case. And through some really good marketing from Facebook, it became kind of the de facto library of the web. I think tools like Astro and Svelte are similarly showing a different way we can approach things that involves you know, authoring and adding a compile step. And they're by no means original there. I mean, static site generators have existed for a while. They just kind of layer in this. And we'll also spit out some reactive, like, interactive bits. And you don't have to figure out how to do that or write your own JavaScript for it. Just, Mm. you know, write the stuff. We'll figure out the rest. So, yeah, I, I do think that's kind of the nature of the web platform is, you know, libraries are experiments that extend what the platform can already do or abstract away some of the tough stuff so that people can focus on building and then eventually, hopefully, the best stuff gets absorbed back into the platform. Hmm. The potential problem with that model is that usually by the time that happens, the tooling has both gotten incredibly heavy to the detriment of end users and has become really entrenched. So even though like the idea, like you took the jQuery, we talk about it in the past, tense, but it's still all over the web because these sites that were built with it aren't just going to rip it out. It's a lot of work Mm. to do that. And there's a lot of developers even today who, when they start a new project, they reach for jQuery because that's what they learned on and that's what they know and it's easiest for them. And, you know, so these tools just really have persistence for better or for worse. It's great if you invested a lot of time in learning them. It's great job security, right? You're not wasted time. But, you know, a lot of these tools are very heavy, very labor-intensive for the browser, and ultimately result in a more fragile end-user experience, which is not always the best thing. I, rem- I
1: remember at, uh, at one point there was um, a, a sort of movement calling for React to actually be shipped with the browser um, <laughs> but as a sort of way of, of offsetting the penalty of downloading and parsing all that script. Um, yeah. it, it's kind of... It's frustrating because it's like, okay, you're on the right path here that, you know, this functionality should be native to the browser. But then crucially, at the last moment, you you swerve and miss. And it's like, no, we don't want to embed React. What we want to do is look at the problems that React is helping people solve. Look at the functionality that's providing and say, okay, how can we take the best version of that and work that into the web platform? Would you agree? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Oh, exactly. It's like, I React will eventually be in the browser, just not the way everybody, you know, like I think a lot of people talk about it as in like literally it's, you know, the same way J, jQuery is in the browser now too. We just, we absorb the best bits, put some different names on them, arguably more verbose, clunky, difficult to use names in many cases. And yeah, so I think that's how it'll eventually play out. You know, the other thing that libraries do that I wish the web platform was better at since we're on this path is just API consistency, right? Hmm. So it's one thing that jQuery got really is the API is very consistent in terms of how methods are authored and how they work. And just as a counterpoint, right? So in JavaScript proper, like just native JavaScript, you could make a strong argument that query selector and query selector all shouldn't be separate methods. It should just be one method that has a much shorter name that always returns. Hell, I'd even argue an array, not a node list, because there are so many more methods that, you know, you can use to loop over arrays and manipulate them than nodes or node lists. Why is the class list API a set of methods on a property instead of just a set of methods you call directly on the element? So why is it class list add, class list remove, instead of add class, remove class, toggle class, etc. It's just lots of little things like that. This death by a thousand cuts, I think, exacerbates this problem that even when native methods do the thing, you still get a lot of developers who reach for tooling um, Mm. just because it smooths over those rough edges. It has often has good documentation. MDN kind of fills the gap, but it's not perfect. And uh, yeah. Yes,
1: I mean, using a a well-designed framework, you know, the methods uh, tend to be guessable. You know, if you're if you've seen documentation that includes a remove method, you could probably guess that an add method is the opposite of that, um, right. because that's how anybody would logically name it. Um, but it's not always that way with native code, uh, I guess, because of reasons I don't know. Designed by committee, his, historical problems. I know that at one point there were was it MooTools or Prototype yeah. or uh, some of these old oh, frameworks that would add their own methods and um, basically uh, meant that those those names couldn't be reused for sort of compatibility yeah. reasons.
0: Yeah, Mood, I remember there was that whole like Smushgate gate kind of thing that happened where they were trying to figure out how to, I think it was the flat method or whatever that like originally was supposed to be called. Like MooTools had an array method of the same name attached to the array prototype and it like, if the web standards committee implemented it the way they wanted to it would break any website using mootools it was like a whole a whole which, thing
1: which almost seems i mean in some ways it seems laughable you know any website using mootools you know if your website's using mootools good luck at this point but it is a a, a fundamental attribute of the web that we try not to break things that, mm-hmm. <laughs> that once it's once it's deployed it should keep running and a browser update isn't going to make your use of, you know, HTML or CSS or, or whatever invalid. It's going to be keep, you know, we're going to keep supporting it for uh, as long as possible. Even if it's been deprecated, the browsers will keep supporting it.
0: Yeah, I was just going to say the marquee element, right? It was deprecated ages ago and it still mm. works in every major browser, just for legacy reasons. It's kind of that core ethos of the web, which is a thing I love. I think it's a good thing. Yeah,
1: it is. But yes, it, it does, it's not without its problems as, as mm-hmm. we've seen uh it's uh yeah yeah very difficult there's been lots of i mean you mentioned the view transitions api which i think now may be more more broadly supported i don't know if i, I saw from one of the web.dev posts that's now as of this month is has better support Let's see which so it's is your transitional state but like, like a an spa style transition between one state and another but you can do it with multi page
0: apps yeah, I thought I saw a Discord I'm in. Just quick shout out to the front end horse Discord. Adam Argyle was in there today talking about how, because he built this slide demo thing where it's like every slide is its own HTML file and it uses view transitions to make it look like it's just one single page app. He was saying that it still does require Chrome Canary with a flag turned on okay but you know things change quickly like very slowly and then all at once that's pretty that's
1: pretty up-to-date and an authoritative statement (laughs) there of yeah so but we you know we saw it was google io recently we saw loads mm -hmm. of announcements from from them about things they are working on things like the the popover api which is really interesting which you know make makes use of this this top layer concept Where you don't have to futz around with Z index to make sure if you, if something needs to be on the top, it can be on the top. You know, it's these sorts of solutions that you get from, from the web platform that are always going to be a bit of a hack if they're implemented in, you know, by a library in in JavaScript. It's the fact that, you know, you can have a popover that you can always guarantee is going to be on top of everything else and has baked into it behavior so that it can be accessible accessibly dismissed to, you know, all those really important subtleties that it's so easy to get wrong with a sort of a JavaScript implementation that the web platform just gets right. And I guess that means that the the web platform is always going to move more slowly than a big framework like React or, or what have you. But it does it for a reason because every change is is considered for I don't know, robustness and performance and accessibility and, and backward compatibility. So you end up with a ultimately a, a better solution, even if it has weird method names.
0: <laughs> For sure. Yeah, no, that's totally fair. I think, yeah. yeah we oh, had, sorry, go ahead, Rich. We, yeah.
1: I was about to mention, Rachel, we had Rachel Andrew on the show a few episodes ago, talking about Google Baseline. Which is the initiative to, to say which features are supported, replace a sort of a browser support matrix kind of idea. And if you look at the posts that Rachel writes, what's new on the web, uh, on web.dev, uh, every month, she does a roundup of, of what's now stable, what, what you can use. And there's just a, a vast amount being added to the web platform all the time. I mean, it could be a changelog from a major framework. <laughs> Because because it is a major framework, right? It's the native web platform. But there's just things being added all the time. Are there is there anything in particular that you've seen that you think would make a, a big difference? Or is it are you just hanging out for that dom diffy <laughs> all those things that are yet to come?
0: Yeah. The one I get so Things like transitions between pages and stuff, I'm going to be honest, those don't excite me as much as I think they excite a lot of other people. I know that's a big part of the reason why a lot of developers that I know really like SPAs and I know marketers get really excited about that sort of thing. Um, I've just never really understood that. <laughs> uh, I am really holding out for a DOM diff kind of method. I think the API I'm honestly most excited for uh, is the Temporal API, which is still in, in, I think, stage three. So it's not kind of coming anytime soon. But working with dates in JavaScript sucks, and the Temporal API is hopefully going to fix a lot of those issues. Probably introduce some new ones, but fix most of them. Um,
1: This is is new to me. Give give us a a top-level sort of explanation of of what's going on with that one.
0: Oh, yeah, sure. So one of the... One of the big things that's tough to do with the date object in JavaScript, I guess there's two, for me, there's two big things that are really particularly painful. One of them is time zones. So, you know, trying to specify a time in a particular time zone or get a time zone from a date object, you know, so like based on when it was created or like how it was created. No, this is the time zone. Figuring out the time zone the person is in is really difficult. And then the other aspect that's difficult is relative time. So if you've got two different dates and you want to just quickly figure out how much time is between them, you can do it, but it involves doing a bunch of math and then making some assumptions, especially once you get past days or I guess weeks, right? So I could easily look at two, two date objects, grab timestamps from them and be like, okay, this was two weeks ago or several days. But then once you start getting into like months, the amount of days in a month varies. So if I don't want to say like 37 weeks, I want to say (laughs) have running months. That ends up being, it's going to vary based on how long the months were. And so the temporal API addresses a lot of those issues. It's going to have first class support for time zones. It's going to have specific methods for getting relative time between two temporal objects and in particular one where you hopefully won't have to it's been a while since i've read the spec but i'm pretty sure it allows you to not have to worry about like you know if it's more than seven days show in weeks if it's more than four weeks you know use months like blow. you know you just get a time string that says this was x amount of time ago or is happening an amount of time in the future or whatever Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's certain things the date API can do relatively or the date object can do relatively well. But then there's a couple of you're trying to do appy stuff with it. Like, for example, I once tried to build a time zone calculator so I could quickly figure out when some of my colleagues in other parts of the world, like when it was for them. And it was just really hard to account for things like, oh, you know, most of Australia shifted daylight savings time this month. But. This one, you know, this one state there doesn't, they, you know, they actually do it a different month or not at all. And so, you know, you just, it was a huge pain. Um, Anything involving time zones is difficult. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's one of the biggest problems in computer science that, and obviously naming things, but yeah, it, it will smooth over a lot of those issues with a nicer, more modern API. It's, if you go over to tc39.es slash proposal Temporal. They have the docs of the work in progress or the spec in progress. It's authored a lot more nicely than what you might normally see on like say the W3C website in terms of just human readability. But you can tell they borrowed a lot of the way the API works from libraries like Moment.js and DateFNS and, and things like that, which again gets back to kind of this idea that libraries really pave those cow paths and show what a good API might look like. And then the best ones usually kind of win out and eventually become part of the browser and again back to my point about all the you know
1: the web platform getting the important details right you know mm-hmm. if you've got native date objects you're going to be able to represent those as localized strings which is like a mm-hmm. whole other headache that i mean i've used libraries that will you know tell you oh this blog post was posted two weeks ago but it will give you the string two weeks ago and there's no way to <laughs> to to translate that or yep. yeah so it, all those all those details, having it baked into the platform, is, is gonna, that's going to be super good,
0: I'm smashing. One might
1: even say smashing. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, the it, it kind of raises a question because the standards process takes time, and paving the cow paths uh, is always going to you know you there has to be a cow path before you pave it. So does that approach always leave us you know a step behind what can be done in in big frameworks?
0: Yeah, theoretically, you know, I think we can look at an example where this didn't work right with the like the toast API that Google tried to make happen a few years back, where that was done relatively quickly. It was done without consensus across browsers. I don't think it really leaned heavily on. I think it was just doing what you described the like the paving before the cow paths were there. And so it was just met with a lot of resistance. But yeah, the I think the platform will always be a bit behind. I think libraries are always going to be a part of the web. Even as the Vanilla JS guy, I use libraries all the time for certain things that are particularly difficult. You know, for me, that tends to be like media stuff. So if I need to display really nice photo galleries that expand and shrink back down and you can slide through them, I I always grab a library for that. I'm not. I'm not coding that myself. I probably could. I just don't, I don't want to. It's a lot. It's it's a lot lot of little details to manage. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I do. I think the platform will always be behind. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think for me, the big thing I've just, I've wished for years is that we kind of, we run through this cycle as an industry where little tool comes out, does a thing well, throws in more and more features, gets bigger and bigger, Mm. becomes like a black hole and just sucks up the whole industry. Like I'll just, I keep picking on react, but like react is the library right now. Mm. Right. And then eventually people are like, Oh, this is big. Maybe we should not use something as big. And then you start to see little alternatives pop up. And I really wish that we stopped doing that whole bigger black hole kind of thing mm-hmm. and the tools just stayed little and people got okay with the idea that you would pull together a bunch of little tools instead of just always grabbing the behemoth that does all the things. I often liken it to like people always go for the Swiss army knife when they really just need a toothpick mm-hmm. or like a spoon or a pair of scissors, like just <laughs> grab the tool you need, not the giant multi-tool that has all this stuff you don't.
1: Um, It almost comes back to the sort of classic Unix philosophy of, you know, of lots of small tools that do specific things and then Mm -hmm. that have a a common interface between them so that you can chain stuff together.
0: And that's probably where, now that you're saying it, I hadn't really considered this, but that's probably where the behavior or the tendency arises is it's if you have a bunch of small libraries from like the same author, they often play together very nicely. Mm. If you don't. They don't always, Yeah, it's tougher to kind of chain them together or connect those dots. And I really wish there was some sort of mechanism in place that incentivized incentivized that a little bit more. I don't know. I got nothing, but I hadn't really considered <laughs> that until you just said it.
1: Maybe it uh, needs to be a web platform feature to be able to plug in.
0: Some yeah, it's almost like you remember the jQuery, I think it was called the extend method or they had some sort of hook that if you were writing a plugin like it would basically like you would attach to the jQuery prototype mm. and add your own things in a non-destructive way. Like I wish there was some really lightweight core that we could bolt a bunch of stuff into. That would be nice. Yes, and
1: I think that would need to that would need to come from the platform rather than from any sort of uh, third party because th- yeah. The the interface would never be agreed upon. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> very true. You talk a lot about uh, vanilla JavaScript as a concept. I think it it helps to give things names. I feel I kind of feel like the this approach that we're talking about here is being like web platform native. Do you think that yep. sort of describes it accurately? Yes. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. So, I mean, you you've talked about all you know, still reaching for libraries and things you know where necessary. <laughs> Would you say that? You know if it is our approach to um pave the cow paths that we really you know the ecosystem needs these frameworks to be innovating and pushing the boundaries and finding the the requirements that are gonna stick, are they just an essential part of the ecosystem and maybe not more than I'd
0: yeah, I think more than I'd like to admit they are an essential part of the ecosystem, and I think what it comes back to for me is. I wish that they kind of did the one thing well and stayed a relatively manageable size. Preact, for example, has done a really great job of adding more features and still keeping themselves around three kilobytes or so Mm. minified and gzipped, which is pretty impressive considering how much like React the API is. And they have fewer abstractions internally, so a lot of the kind of dynamic updates, you know, you, user, drew, interact with the page, some state changes, and a render happened. That ended up happening orders of magnitude faster than it does in React as well. Now, to be fair, a lot of the reason why is Preact is newer and it benefits from a lot of like modern JavaScript methods that didn't exist when React was created. So mm. under the hood, there's a lot more abstraction happening. But you know, it'd probably require a relatively big rewrite of React to, to fix that. And we
1: know those are always popular. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> they are dangerous they are definitely i understand why people don't like to do them i've done it multiple times i always end up shooting myself in the foot it's right. not great so say that i'm a, a react developer and i'm currently
1: day-to-day building client-side spas but i really like the yep. sound of this more sort of platform native approach uh, and i want to sure. give it a try for my next project
0: where should i start how do i you know dip a toe into this world Oh, It depends. So the easiest way, and I hate myself for saying this, but the easiest way, honestly, so you've got a few options. One of them, you rip out React, you drop in Preact. There's a second smaller kind of thing you need to kind of smooth over some compatibility between the two. But that's going to give you just an instant performance boost, a reduce in file size, and you can keep doing what you were doing. The way that I think is a little bit more Future proof and interesting. You grab a tool like Astro, which allows you to literally use React to author your code. And then it's going to compile that out, excuse me, into mostly HTML, some JavaScript. It's going to strip out React proper and, mm-hmm. you know, just add the little interactive bits that you need. I saw a tweet a year or two ago from Jason Langsdorf from the Netlify developer relations team Mm -hmm. about how he took a a Next app that he had built, kept like 90% of the code. He just made a few kind of changes to make it fit into the way Astro hooks into things, ran the Astro compiler, and he ended up having the same exact site with almost all of the same code, but the shipped JavaScript was like 90% smaller than what he had put in. And you get all the performance and resilience wins that come with that just automatically, mm-hmm. uh, just by slapping a compiler on top of what you already have. So I'm really excited about a tool like Astro for that reason. I'm also a little bit worried that a tool like Astro becomes a like a band-aid that stops us from addressing some of the real systemic issues of always reaching for these tools, you know, because you can just keep doing what you're doing and not really make any meaningful changes and, you know, temporarily reduce the impact of them. I don't know that it really puts us in a better place as a, you know, an industry in the long run, especially since tools like Svelte and Astro are now kind of working towards this idea that rather than shipping multi-page apps, they're going to ship multi-page apps that just progressively enhance themselves into single page apps with hydration. And now we're right back to, we've got an SPA. So I recently, I mentioned, you know, kind of some stuff has changed. I recently saw a talk from Rich Harris, who's the, like the creator of Svelte and Mm. SvelteKit about this very thing. And he's very strongly of the belief that SPAs are better for users because you're not fetching and rerunning all of the JavaScript every time the page loads. And I get that argument. Uh, And SvelteKit does it in a really cool way where, like, rather than having, like, a link element, like you might get in, like, Next.js or something like that, a React router or whatever, they just intercept traditional hyperlinks and do some checking to see if they, you know, point to your current page or an external site and Mm -hmm. behave accordingly. The thing that nobody ever talks about when they talk about SPAs are better is all of the accessibility stuff that they tend to break that you then need to bolt back in. So like, even if you're like, okay, this library is going to handle intercepting the links and finding the page and doing all the rendering and figuring out what needs to change and what stays the same, there's this often missed piece around how do you let someone who's using a screen reader know that the UI has changed? And how do you do it in a way that's not absolutely obnoxious? You don't want to read the entire contents of the page, so you can't just slap an ARIA live attribute on there. Do you shift focus to like the H1 element on the page? What happens if the user didn't put an H1 element on the page? Do you have some sort of visually hidden element that you drop some text in saying page loaded so that they know? Do you make sure you shift content uh, focus back to the top so they're not like stranded halfway down the page if they're a keyboard user? Yeah, you know, It's one of those things where how you handle it is very, it depends kind of contextual. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really tough for a library to implement a solution that works for all use cases. I think it's optimistic to assume the developers will always do the right thing. And so, you know, I mentioned at the very start that I'm excited about these tools, but I also see them doing that, like, let's repeat the same mistakes all over again. And this feels like that to me. I absolutely understand why. On certain very heavy sites, you might want to shift to an SPA model, Mm -hmm. but there are also just so many places you can really do real harm to yourself or your users when going down that path. And so I kind of worry that like these tools came up to solve a bunch of UI or UX and performance related issues with state-based UI just to then re-implement them in a different way eventually. That's my soapbox on that. If you have any questions or comments, I'm happy to hear them. But... So, so as often happens when we talk, we
1: we get all the way to the end and conclude that we're doomed. That's yeah.
0: <laughs> We're not. Like, I think it's mostly, we're, we're headed in a right direction, Drew. I'm a little less doom and gloom than I was a few years ago. And as much as I, I just ragged on tools like Astro and Svelte, I think they're going to do a lot of good for the industry. I just love the move to mostly HTML, sprinkle in some JavaScript, progressively enhance some things. Um, like that's a beautiful thing. And even though I was just ragging on the whole SPA thing that these tools are doing, one of the things they also do that's great is if that JavaScript to enhance it into an SPA doesn't load or fails for some reason, Astro and Kit fall back to a multi-page app with server-side HTML. So... It's just a really, it's that, I think that promise of the isomorphic apps, they used to call them a while mm-hmm. ago, it's maybe closer to that vision being realized than we've ever gotten before. I still personally think that just building multi-page apps is often better, but, you know, I'm probably in the minority here. I often feel like I'm the old man shouting at the cloud, you know? <laughs> and yes, yeah, so
1: as often happens... It- it all comes round to progressive enhancement being a, a really great solution to to all of our problems. Maybe not all of our problems, but it's some of them one. around the web.
0: <laughs> it's going to cure global hunger. Yeah, you watch.
1: <laughs> so i've I've been learning all about being web platform native.
0: What have you been learning about lately, Chris? I've been trying to finally dig into ES build, the kind of build tool slash compiler. I've been using Rollup and a separate kind of NPM SAS compiler thing and my own cobbled together build tool for years. And then Rollup v3 came out and broke a lot of my old stuff if I upgrade to it. So I'm still on Rollup 2. And this was kind of the motivation for me to finally start looking at YesBuild, which also has the ability, I learned, to not just compile JavaScript, but also CSS. And we'll take like nasty CSS imports and concatenate them all into one file for you just like es modules would Hmm. so now i'm over here thinking like oh is it finally time to drop sass for native css and oh all these old sass variables i have i should probably convert those over to css variables and so it's created this whole daisy chain of like rabbit hole for me in a very good way because this is the kind of thing that keeps what we do professionally interesting is you know learning new things
1: you'll be the uh, vanilla css guy before we know it
0: (laughs) That's Steph Eccles. She is much better at that than I am. I reach for her stuff all the time, but yeah, maybe a little, bit, a little bit.
1: If you, dear listener, would like to hear more from Chris, you can find his social links, blog posts, developer tips, newsletter, and more at gomakethings.com. And you can check out his podcast at vanillajspodcast.com or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks
0: for joining us today, Chris. Did you have any parting words? No, Drew, just thank you so much for having me. I always enjoy our chat, so it was great to be here. This is Smashing. And that was our podcast. Thank you very
1: much for listening. And if you liked it, please share it with your friends.
0: Find us on the web at smashingmagazine.com, on Twitter at Smashing Mag, Smashing Magazine on Facebook, or in the supermarket by the cat food.